Thank you, Artie, for that uh, wonderful and thoughtful prayer, very specific. Uh, you can tell it was uh, well prepared ahead of time. You know, I wish this morning I had had more time. I wish I had 30 more minutes or even more than that. I could probably go two hours talking to you about some of the work that we're involved in. When we show you the uh, videos and slides and things like that, and we just uh, give a few minutes of talk uh, about the work. We give you the tip of the iceberg, and what we try to do is, is in that tip of the iceberg is give you the highlights. Uh, but I wish, I, I wish you could see what's underneath all that and experience the relationships that we have uh, with those in the mission field. And uh, one of the things I, I do want to point out is that even though you only saw my wife, Karen, who's with me today in two or three of those pictures. Uh, Karen was very visible in all of that because uh, she took about 90% of those pictures. And so she's behind the camera taking all those nice photos. Uh, she bought a real new fancy camera last year and she's literally spent days, not just hours, but days studying that thing because that's what it took. It's one of these new mirrorless cameras and it does all kinds of weird stuff that I have no clue about. I know how to use an iPhone camera and that's it. <laughs> and it takes pretty good pictures, but uh, not like she does. And so she was very visible in that. I wish I could talk to you about the work, kind of the brainchild of Karen to help members of the church in the mission field go into business for themselves or create an income beyond what they already have. Because one of our, the purposes of our ministry in planting new churches and getting them to be up and running and be, become indigenous over time is for them to support themselves fully. And sometimes we don't really go the next step and, and help them uh, in, in helping them um, learn how to create an income for themselves. And that's something that Karen has decided to do. It started out working with women, but that kind of got over into men as well at times. And, and so we've got some things going on uh, because of Karen's idea of doing that to help individual Christians not only support their own families in a greater way, but to support the church so they don't have to rely on outside support. And so we're hoping that will catch on and snowball over time. And so that's part of Karen's work. Uh, Karen just does so many things. She helps organize me because I'm not a natural organizer. Uh, I've had to learn to be. Being married to her, we just celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary, uh, January 5th. I think it was on Thursday. And um, we're, uh, we, uh, hopefully God uses us to work as a team together and do some, some great things. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about with regard to the last slide presentation, uh, oh, by the way, Eric reminded me that a couple of weeks ago when I was here, I told him I'd raise $6,000 for that van you saw, and then I just told you it was 15, I'd forgotten that, I told him it was six. He said, wow, you've, you've gotten, you know, you've made some progress. And so now it's 15. Well, now it's, uh, now I need not 5,000, but I need 4,850. <laughs> because just between uh, the break in Sunday school and, and worship just now, uh, a couple of folks handed me some checks. So God bless you for that, and I appreciate that. Um, but my main purpose was for you to be in prayer about that, uh, that the Lord will provide that quickly. But one of the things I wanted to talk about with Utop Road, um, it's a simple four-letter word, U-T-A-P, but it's pronounced Utop. Uh, Utop Road, Church of Christ, where the Balos work, uh, where Jack Balow, a pioneer preacher, 
uh, planted the church there, and now his son Ruel preaches, and Rolando is another man that preaches there full-time, a young man who's newly married and doing great work. They do things a little bit differently in method than what we were traditionally involved in, in group ministry and in doing campaigns. When we went there back in November to do a missionary or a mission workshop and, and, uh, and do a feeding program and a medical mission and so on, what we have traditionally done is that while we have people sort of captive, we're, we're handing out food, we're, we're giving out free medical, uh, doing medical checks and so on and, and giving out medicines and vitamins and, and things like that. Normally we will ask them at that point on the spot if they're interested in a Bible study. One of the drawbacks to that is that they will study with us sometimes when they're not really interested because they feel obligated, and especially when Americans are there. In the Philippines, we are highly respected. Now, that's not true in many areas of the world. We're being attacked in so many corners of the earth, everywhere we go in so many ways. But in the Philippines, we are, are somewhat heroes to them because of what General MacArthur did in World War II, promised to come back and free the Filipinos uh, from Japanese oppression, and, and they remember that. And, and you saw the picture up there, those of you who are in here, of MacArthur in a big bronze, about 10 or 12-foot statue, uh, walking ashore, and that is exactly the beach where he walked in and promised to come back right there near Tacloban. And so we, we are highly respected and well-loved in the Philippines because of that. When we give out free food or medicines or whatever we do, sometimes they feel obligated to sit down and study the Bible when they really may not be interested, but they have too much respect for us to tell us that and just leave and go home. We assure them we put no conditions on studying God's Word. We're not going to treat, treat you if you'll sit down and study with us. We don't do that. That's not the way Jesus did things. Jesus had compassion on everybody. And he healed people, he fed people, whether they deserved it or not. They didn't have to earn it, he just did it. It was unconditional. And that's what we do. But as much as we emphasize that, uh, sometimes they feel obligated to do that. So, Utop Road, uh, I, well, I asked them before we got started in our planning session, I said, well, are we going to try to do Bible studies while we're there handing out the food and the medicines and do that. And they said, no, no, we're going to do something uh, that we normally do. And they really find out who the people are who are interested. We met at a place outside the building in a public area where we got an opportunity to speak to them about hope in Christ, about the spiritual blessings that you obtain if you are in Christ, and then to tell them without going into the plan of salvation and all the uh, particulars of, of the church and so on, we would just stop short and say, now, if you're interested in having all those spiritual blessings in Christ, if you're interested in the hope in Christ that we're talking about for your life, we're going to be meeting tomorrow morning at the church building, which is just down the road, and if you're interested, you can show up there for Bible study. Well, we had about 200 people gathered together on a couple of different nights, uh, for those sessions, and when we announced that the next morning, we had between 40 and 80 people show up to study the Bible. We knew they were interested. Now, that's not a way we had normally done things, but here is Utop Road's philosophy, and, and this, I'm getting into my sermon now, because this all matches up. 
Utop's road philosophy is this. We want, to we want to study the Bible with people who are really interested in the Bible, not just out of obligation. And so they would not show up at the church building the next morning if they only felt obligated. They would do it for sincere reasons because it was in their heart to do so. Utop's road idea is we want to teach them not only about baptism because we're not just about baptisms. We're about conversions. We want them to understand about commitment to Christ. When you're baptized, here's what you can expect for your life. Here's what the church is all about. We want them to understand. Many times we study with people. And in the process of studying and talking about commitment and the Lord's church and, and what that's all about and their commitment to it, we will often make the statement that if you're going to be baptized today and then next Sunday go back to the church where you are now a member, then you should not be baptized. Because they've really not understood the church and commitment enough to be baptized. You see my point? Now, I know I'm being recorded here, so don't write me up in all the Brotherhood publications that you know, say, Dale doesn't believe in baptism. <laughs> no, that's not what we're about. Um, you know, Jesus and Paul both said, you know, uh, I was not sent to baptize. You know, we're, we're sent to convert people, and we want them converted. Now, you're not going to keep everybody, but you do want to do the best you can in teaching people about leadership and commitment and, and uh, dedication to the Lord once they're baptized into Christ. And along those lines, if you'll turn to Mark chapter 10, I want to talk to you about commitment and discipleship. Of all the places and passages and stories in the Bible that we could go to, this is my favorite about commitment to Christ and discipleship. In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, we read about the rich young ruler of whom we're all familiar Mark 10, 17, as he was setting out on a journey, I'm reading from the New American Standard, by the way, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Uh, I think New King James says he was one who had many possessions. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Now why were the disciples amazed 
when Jesus said it's, it, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. Because there was, there was this Jewish thought process back then, at least one of the ideas was that if someone was rich, they equated that with spiritual success and dedication to God. And that if someone was rich, God must be very pleased with their life and so he would materially bless them because they were spiritually in line with his will. And so they had this idea. And so that's why, well, who can be saved, they said. I mean, if this guy can't be saved, who can? After all, he's not only rich, he's doing everything that, that you've outlined. So what do we see? Look at this prospect's potential. There are some who have called this story the big one that got away, you know, take, kind of take off of a fishing story where, where you know, over time the, the fish you caught and got off the hook gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the story gets more embellished. And some of you fishermen know what I'm talking about. But some have called this as the big one that got away because you look at his potential. And mothers with daughters think about this. He's rich and he's young and he's a ruler. Now, uh, if you're a mother with a daughter and here's a young man who has all the spiritual things in place and then on top of that he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler, that's an ideal guy. You wouldn't mind him marrying your daughter. I wouldn't mind that at all. That didn't happen to us. We have two sons-in-law. They're not rich or they're young, but they're not rulers. And um, this, this would be an ideal guy if he's spiritually what he ought to be. But, but look at his other qualities. He was courteous. He was respectful. He ran and knelt before Jesus. He had some level of interest in spiritual things. He's unafraid of public opinion because he does this out in the open. He's seeking help from Jesus, who was already in disfavor among the Jewish leaders. And he seems to be a good moral man and maybe better than most, maybe better than you and I. He has everything we, we think that would seemingly appeal to God. He's a dream prospect, but Jesus deals with him in a way that appears abrasive and at the very least, direct. You know, sometimes we get caught up in our prospects. Sometimes we run across a prospect who, who may have some money, who's influential, who has position in life, who's well-respected by, by so many people that know him or her. And we think, you know, if only we could just sort of get this person to be a member of the church. Think of their circle of influence. Think how impressed people would be with them and, and think of the circle of friends that he might bring to Christ. And sometimes our thinking can humanly go down that road. I mean, it's only natural to think that way sometimes. But what did Jesus do? The first thing Jesus does is to rebuke him and he points him to God. There are three... Jesus directs this man's attention to three things and the first is who God is. He wants him to know who God is. Jesus is not impressed with him. We're not trying to bring God to our prospect. We're trying to bring our prospect to God. We want them to know who God is. It doesn't matter who he is or she is because we're all sinners saved by the grace of God if we make that choice. And that's what Jesus wanted to do. 
This young man runs up and compliments Jesus by calling him good teacher. And rather than thanking the young man and being impressed and flattered by that, the first thing Jesus does is impress him with God's goodness, not how good this rich young ruler is. Jesus' first concern is not this young man, but making sure God is glorified because, you see, evangelism is preaching who God is. We bring our prospects to God, no matter who they are. We're all the same. We're all on the same level. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. To come to know God and learn about His faithfulness brings us to understand the one whom we have offended. The gospel is not what we must do to be saved. The gospel is all about what God has already done and what He did on the cross. You know, so much preaching is, is watered down and candy-coated by saying God is love and He has great things in store for your life and there's the gospel of prosperity out there. It's all positive thinking and, and not much detail in terms of salvation sometimes. And all those good, positive things are right and they're biblical about God. He is great and He does have great things in store for your life. But Jesus first tells this young man who God really is. And that salvation does not depend on our own goodness, but it depends on the goodness of God. That's how we're saved. That is through whom we are saved. And so the first thing Jesus does is to point this young man to who God is and impress him with God's good character. Now, secondly, he impresses him with the commandments or the regulations of God. He says, keep the commandments. The young man says, which ones? And then Jesus proceeds to list almost all of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't go through all of them, but enough of them to help the young man know that he's representing and embracing all Ten Commandments. And the young man says, well, you know, I've kept all these from my youth up. He's wanting to know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You just said to do all these. So I'm doing all those things. So, so you know... Do I have eternal life? Do I not? How do I obtain it? You see, Jesus saved the one thing that he most needed. Jesus took the tenth commandment, which is don't covet, and he turned that into practical reality. He said, you need to go and sell everything you have and give it all away. Then you'll be qualified to come follow me. He was testing the young man with the one weakness in his life that he needed to know about. The one thing that may have kept him from inheriting the eternal life he's asking about. Now, I have no idea in the world whether if this young man said, okay, I'll go do that and I'll be back later. And, and if he went and sold, I don't know if Jesus would say, okay, go ahead. Or if he'd pull him back and say, okay, you've passed the test. I'll let you keep it. Use it for God's glory. I don't know. We don't know that part of the story. All we know is this young man went away sad. Why? Because he had many possessions and he could not obey this 10th commandment brought down into practical reality. We discover this man is faithful only if it's convenient and suitable with the way he wants to live. Isn't it interesting that, that those of us who are made in God's image try to mold God into our image at times? and make him conform to our concept of what's right and wrong. And so often we go away sad 
because we cannot bring God in line with our standard. We cannot manipulate God like we want to. And so we need to understand who God is and we need to understand the standard of His law so we can come to God, not so He can meet our standard and come to us. God has already come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And He offered up salvation. And so the third and final thing that Jesus does, at least for this lesson, is that Jesus confronts this young man with the one greatest problem of all. <clears throat> now, if you don't get anything else out of this lesson, or if you've been sleeping up till now, wake up and hear this, because this is the real point of the lesson. This is the, the major point of the story. What does Jesus do? He confronts him with the one biggest problem of all. Now, the specific teaching here for this young man is that you are rich and you need to give up all of that to be qualified to come follow me. And that's the way you can begin to inherit eternal life. That's the specific teaching for him. But involved in that specific teaching is a larger umbrella principle that we all need to understand because being rich doesn't apply to all of us. In fact, most of us or maybe any of us in here. Maybe you're rich and I don't know it, but, but it rarely applies to most people. And so what is the larger principle that's really involved in all of this? Okay, here it is. The one thing this young man could not give up is the one thing that God had to have. Why? We get caught up in comparisons so often we compare ourselves with ourselves. When we become Christians, we know what's wrong with us. And many times we look at our lives and we want to make improvements and we want to get better. We want to do away with some things and, and put some things in our lives that are better than what we just put away. And in the process of doing that, we may make a list. Say we have a list of ten things and we give up nine. We think, wow, we're, we're doing pretty well. God must be pretty pleased. And yet we may keep one or two things for ourselves. The hardest things to give up in our lives. Why is it that, that of all the things, this young man said, I'm doing all those things you just told me from my youth up. What's next? I'm already doing that. There was only one thing that was a stumbling block. The one weakness in his life. Why is it that Jesus would demand that he give up that when he's given up all that? Because God cannot be number two to anything. That's the whole point. God must be first. Now, He won't always be first in our obedience and our behavior, but He must at least be first in our minds and hearts. That's the idea of faith. Obedience is one thing. Faith is another. Obedience is born out of faith, but faith is in the mind and heart and in the commitment, the resolve that we have. That's why baptism is so easy. Repentance is the hard part. That's why Utop Road says we want people to really understand commitment. We want them to understand it. When they're baptized, if their life is not different on the other side of baptism than it was before, 
then they should not be baptized. They don't understand what coming to Christ is all about. And that works for them in a very wonderful way in the way they conduct their, their evangelism. And that's all Jesus is doing here. He's telling this young man, the one thing you cannot give up is the one thing God must have. Because God must be number one, not number two to anything. Maybe God moved up from number 10 to number two, and again, we think that's pretty good. God must be pretty impressed with us. No, no, he must move on up, be at the top of that list. And so only one thing he couldn't give up of all the things in his life. He was such a good man, maybe better than most, but all that goodness could not save him. Even with all his obedience, he went away sorrowful. He realized he had to give up that one thing to be right with God. He just could not bring himself to do it. And there are any number of things in this life, only one of which may be hindering our walk with Jesus. And whatever it is, it must be given up or else it comes before God. And that cannot happen. That's really the pinpoint lesson in the rich young ruler. We can learn lots of other things about riches and how to use them and how they can be a stumbling block and a glory to God. And, and we can learn all those things. But the one big lesson is that the one thing that's so hard for us to give up is the one thing that God must have. The scripture says this young man went away. He, he went away sad because he had many possessions. Would it not also be correct to say that many possessions had him in their grasp? What is it that possesses you and prevents you and me from walking with Jesus? Is, is there some habit in your life that you just can't seem to give up? Some habit you struggle through? A habit you may always have and never be able to 100% completely give up. But what is that one thing? that you must at least resolve in your mind and heart to do everything within your power and by the power of God to give that up and to put that behind you in your life. What is that? Either as a non-Christian or a Christian, I trust that most of us in here of accountable age have put on Christ in baptism. We've repented in the past. We're doing our best in so many ways. But is there something that, that you need to straighten out in your life? What better time to do it than the first of the year when we think about beginnings and new things? Why not make that right with God this morning? If you need to obey the gospel of Christ, confess Christ, believing in Him, repenting of your sins, being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, knowing that your life on the other side of baptism will be different than where you are right now. That's the invitation of Christ that he offers you right now as we stand and sing.